This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm speaking with Hannah Shank. Hannah Shank is the Director of Strategy for Public Interest Technology at New America, where she works to develop the public interest technology field via research, storytelling, and fostering connections. She founded and edits The Commons, a publication for people working in and around government innovation efforts. Previously, as part of the United States Digital Service, Schenck was a director within the Department of Homeland Security, where she worked with TSA and Customs and Border Protection to improve the air travel experience. In the private sector, Schenck founded and ran Collective UX, a user experience consultancy for over a decade, working with startups, Fortune 500 companies, and governmental organizations to research and design human-centered products. In addition to her research and design work, Shank is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the author of three works of nonfiction. She is a graduate of Northwestern University and holds an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia University. Shank lives in Brooklyn, New York, with her husband and two children. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. So, Hannah, I. I learned about you and your work through the Public Interest Technology or Pitt University Network, which Cal Poly joined this year. What is a public interest technology? Public interest technology is a, it's a, first of all, it's a new term. So thank you for asking (laughs) or new-ish. Very briefly, the way that we describe public interest technology is to say that it is the application of data design and, and thinking about delivery in service of public problem solving in the digital age. So it's really a way of thinking about solving public sector problems that incorporates private sector practices like looking at data, doing user research, prototyping, testing, and thinking about how you deliver services. You know, I'm really curious. You said that this is a new term. Do you think that public interest technology is a new term because it's something that people are newly passionate about? Or do you think it's responding to something new? and then naming something new that needs a response. Yes, it is literally naming something new. It's a term that has somewhat evolved from this new practice that I just described. There are a lot of teams that are doing what you would call public, or what we would call public interest technology. Certainly where I work, I work on a public interest technology team. So um, we call it public interest technology. And there are a lot of teams that are doing that work around across the country and really around the globe who may not call it public interest technology. Some of them are digital service teams in government. Sometimes they're innovation teams. Sometimes they're just the public works department who happens to have brought on a user-centered person who knows how to do user-centered design. The name uh, really came more from funder world where these things often come from. Um, Uh (laughs) As they often do. Yeah. Yes. And the idea was that technology faces a similar challenge uh, now as law did in the 70s, and that the field of public interest law was developed in part through um, a a number of nonprofits and 
philanthropies who put money in, into it in order to encourage lawyers to be able to either take a leave of absence from corporate law and work in doing public interest law or um, to full-time, you know, move into a public interest law practice. So the term public interest technology is modeled a little bit on that concept of there was this period in the 70s when government and the nonprofit sector needed more really good lawyers out of law school. And we're sort of, we're facing a similar moment now where there is no pipeline really for technologists to work in government or in the public sector. It's not something that the tech sector really has as a value, um, like, oh, you should, you know, go, go do some public interest, you know, something in the public interest and then come back and, you know, cash in your stock options is just, it's not part of the pitch. So the idea was in part to give this thing a name in order to like, right before you can start working to grow something or expand it or make it a field that needs a name. I mean, this is very interesting, very exciting to me. One of the things we're trying to do at Cal Poly is we're trying to create pipelines for technologists and humanists to go into public interest technology or to think, I think in our terms, the terminology that we use more ethically about technology and to pull from a diversity of, of intellectual and cultural and personal backgrounds to go into technology and really kind of uh, flesh out the field with with those kinds of backgrounds. I wanted to ask you, what what is your pipeline? What was your path to Pitt? Is there a pivot moment or an event or experience that led you to want to become part of this movement? My career has been full of pivots. So <laughs> I like to, to do a little of this and then a little of that, I guess. But I definitely did have a, a big pivot moment where I moved from the private sector to the public sector. So I had been running a user experience and research consultancy in the private sector for about 15 years. And before that, I had been on staff at a bunch of different places. And I just I reached a point where I was ready to do something else and something new. And, you know, I've been doing the same thing for a long time. And even though the tech sector evolves or continues to evolve, and even though I was taking on a lot of, I had the luxury of running my own company and therefore deciding what projects I wanted to take, I just felt like I was ready for something else. And I wasn't sure if it was just that, like, tech had kind of started to stagnate for me. There are only so, so many years you can make wireframes, I think. It happened that I won some public sector projects. I won a project with the city of New York with my company. And then I also did a a project for a large uh, healthcare, West Coast healthcare organization. And both of those were so much more interesting. And just the the think the problems were more complex and the work that we did was a lot more interesting and i just it just made me think that it would i would like to do something in the public sector and try to get more of that work and coincidentally this was somewhere around when obamacare launched and healthcare.gov was of course this huge fiasco and at the time when it launched i thought well, I could have told them that that was going to happen. <laughs> like, I've never worked on a project that that launched right away, you know, that launched when they said it was going to launch. And I imagined at the time, and it, this was accurate, that like it involved a lot of legacy systems and it involved getting a bazillion people all on the same page. And just having done that work for so long, I knew 
there was no way that this was going to happen on time. And of course, it, it went down the way that it did. And so that also, when that happened, I had started feeling around for, is there a way to bring my skills to the public sector? Because it seems like they need them. And there wasn't at the time, but shortly, maybe like a year or two later, I came across the United States Digital Service, which was an Obama era effort. And actually, it still exists. I shouldn't say was, um, but it, it was something that was started in the Obama administration after healthcare.gov as an effort to bring more seasoned technologists into government. I live in New York, and that is in Washington, D.C., and it's full-time, and I had two small kids at the time. So I was like, well, I don't really know how this is going to work, but... I will apply and because it sounds fun and like what I should do. And, you know, I'm sure the White House is not going to call me to say that I that they want me. So I'll just apply and what could go wrong? When the offer came through, I was like, okay, now I have to go to Washington. So I commuted for a year, which I don't recommend, between New York and D.C. First, I worked on the immigration system and, and I, I was assigned to the Department of Homeland Security. So I worked with a lot of what we call the components of DHS, immigration, global entry, TSA, customs and border protection. So when I started doing that work, I just knew I was never going to go back to the to the private sector. It was just for I loved the people that I worked with. They were the smartest people I'd ever worked with. The problems were so like exponentially more complex than the problems in the private sector, not to mention the fact that you're doing these things that impact millions of people. Like you don't usually get to do that. You know, if you're like launching a website for a fabric softener or whatever it is that people do these days. Yeah. And I remember actually saying to my boss, I'm never, I'm not going back to what I was doing before. Like this is it for me. This is where I'm going to be. I wanted to ask you about a particular dimension of your path to public interest technology, or that I hope was a dimension of your path to public interest technology that you didn't mention. I can only assume because you are extremely humble, which is your training and your work as a writer. You have a master's of fine arts in nonfiction writing from Columbia University, and you've authored an extraordinary number of articles and books. You write a blog, you maintain a high profile as an author. And I have a segment of the show that I informally title, Why Writing Matters in the Tech Industry. And it involves a weekly public service announcement to take your humanities classes seriously. Okay, so this isn't an actual segment, but I do think it's important for students, particularly the next generation of technologists who are maybe encountering writing in their undergraduate journey, in the process of getting a technical degree, to see how writing relates to, or in, in my view, is maybe essential to thinking about and working in fields that aren't necessarily humanistic. I wonder whether first you might be able to talk a little bit about how you understand your background as a writer and the role of writing in your approach to tech. And then second, maybe you can help me deliver this week's PSA. Why does writing matter or why should it matter to technologists? What I've learned once I got to my current role at New America is that if you are a tech person who can also write, you are like a superhero. You have a superpower that other people don't have. And all of a sudden, once I started writing about public interest technology, which, and I will back up and talk a little bit about how, about the writing career. Yes, I managed two careers um, somehow throughout the course of my life, which 
because uh, why have one when you can have two? <laughs> but I didn't ever really see them coming together in a meaningful way until I came to New America. And they actually had brought me on because of the combination of tech and writing, which I discovered is not common. There are not a lot of people who have worked on their writing practice and also have a grounding in technology. And so part of that is the obvious, like you can explain stuff in a way that people can understand it, which is really helpful. Um, and one of the things that I do actually at New America is part of my mission in life is to try to help other tech people get more writing out into the world, especially in around public interest technology, because we know that public interest technology spreads through storytelling in evangelization. So like if New York reads a story about something that Rhode Island did, they're like, well, why can't we do this in New York? So we need more people who can write about, who can write about technology in an engaging way. And so part of my mission has been to reach out to people and bring them along. I have, I am a confident writer because I have training in writing. And what I have learned from working with other technologists on their writing is that they are, people are not confident in their writing, that some people, you know, can just sit down and like vomit out 800 words and it's not a big deal. And those people very easily be put on the path to being writing and publishing, being writers and publishing their work. But that for some people, it's really challenging and they're, they feel really intimidated by the idea of it. But that if you can get past that, and I work with people to try, I run a, we have a newsletter that goes out to public interest technologists at New America, and that working with people to try to build the, that confidence and those skills is huge. The tech industry so, so dearly needs people who are not intimidated by technology and can write about it clearly. So I, yeah, so I never saw those two things merging ever, even though in my mind, they were sort of a similar skill set. My role as a technologist was always in user experience. And before that, it was in what people called information architecture. And I think before that I had, there was even some other title. I don't know. What I know is that I like, I did, I've been in tech for a long time. And so I started diagramming stuff in PowerPoint before there were even like the tools to do it. But to me, the work that I did in technology was basically just organizing information in a way that made sense. And if you think about it, writing is essentially the same skill set. It is pretty much just organizing information to get the intended, the desired result. And so much of that is also what, how we do you know, tech development and product development. So if you can put those two things together, you're gonna, there are going to be a lot of people who, who want a piece of that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think this is really fascinating. By the way, as somebody who's supposed to write professionally, sometimes does, sometimes procrastinates doing that, 800 words is still a big deal for me. I'm not always sure that I approach it with the confidence that I can write 800 words. But I do think, and this is what I tell my students, that we don't know what we think until we read what we've written. And one of the ways that writing works is not just to express an idea, but actually to clarify for ourselves what we actually think, to kind of take a thought and then externalize it and hold it up for scrutiny and then share it with other people so that they can scrutinize it. You know, in that way, uh, hopefully 
come toward a better understanding of the object and the subject of our thinking, which I think is so, so important. You, you talked a little bit about, you know, writing as a kind of superpower and storytelling in particular as a, an essential skill for technologists, especially when they're interfacing with consumers. Can you say a little bit more about what the superpower is exactly? So there are two pieces to it. One is, I think, just explaining really complex stuff in a way that the general public can get it or that any other people can, you know, anyone can <laughs> can get it. Technology is complicated enough that like there are people who will just write off like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't get that or I don't know how to do that or just, you know. You say the words AI, AI and their their eyes glaze over because they figure they're not going to process anything beyond that. So that's one piece of it is being able to say, to demystify things. But the other piece is, um, and where I, what I find challenging and fun is to make it engaging. So I just, I think that I had mentioned to you, I just turned in a book manuscript on Friday and that book is about public interest technology, but it's full of stories and it's their stories about communities and what, you know, how one community eliminated homelessness. And, you know, I've, and I've written about like how other, how Mobile, Alabama eliminated blight. Well, you don't think about that necessarily as being a tech thing, but once you dig into it and pick it apart, it's similar to any other kind of investigative journalism but having the tech knowledge to add, to ask the right questions and understand the answers and kind of know how to follow the story, I think is really critical and something that if you haven't worked in technology, you don't you don't have. You know, you've talked a little bit about the importance of writing about tech and what it means to write about tech. But it would also be true, I think, to say that tech has changed how we write. And there's a question here that maybe lies in the middle of this intersection between public interest technology and writing and how technology has actually changed writing uh, for the public and in, in the public interest. And one of the things I noticed when I was kind of researching and looking at some of your background is that in addition to your formal writing and your long form pieces about writing that have to deal with technology, you're also a prolific Twitter user. Uh, is it tweeter, twitterer, tweeter writer? I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter, as perhaps a metonym for social media or a kind of epigrammatic form of writing. For those who don't know that word, epigram, epigram is a very ancient form that has to do with uh, short snippets of writing that are composed in very brief what are supposed to be wisdom, epigrammatic writing um, maybe doesn't allow for the kinds of nuance that we'd hope for in the long form piece. Or, and as a platform, some critics have pointed to Twitter as potentially responsible for our culture's loss of nuanced conversations. And it seems like this form of writing epitomizes or is maybe even responsible for a growth of media whose disregard for the kind of complexities that long form writing allows is part of you know, what what many people are concerned about with the form. Um, but that said, it's certainly one of the most public forms of expression in our current communication ecosystem, where public statements on the platform are now become actual national policy. 
And it's one of the giants in tech. How do we understand the relationship between Twitter or public expressions of writing on social media writ large? I'm using Twitter here as kind of a meta metonym for that. And the state of writing in our moment, in your view, has Twitter changed what it means to write or even to think? And as a writer, how do you think about Twitter and the broader social media environment as a means for conduit for expression? How do we think about the nature of public interests and public platforms through which these kinds of important policy gets made? And how do we think about Twitter and social media in the context of public interest technology? Well, first, let me say that I do not think that Twitter is is the place for public policy announce, announcements or to be discussing public policy in any kind of detail. And that, that's been a real, like we're seeing the effects of, of the last four years of that, I think. What, what do you think those effects are? I think that people have a very limited understanding of a lot of things now. And I don't like, and I don't think that I'm unique in saying that. Like, I think most people would say we have very little understanding of what's actually happening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're talking about like stuff that's really nuanced, it, it, I, Twitter, I don't think is the place for it, or at least not the way that we're using it right now, where it's just like being used kind of as a bullhorn. I do think that there are, so part of why I'm a, it's funny that you say I'm a frequent Twitter user, because I always feel like I should, I should tweet more. <laughs> Like there are people out there who are, who are like tweeting all the time. No, we we're, we're being governed by somebody who tweets all the time. Right, right. <laughs> I think I've been trying to work out like what the place is for Twitter in my life. I definitely see people who are great at it. And I follow like a whole crazy mishmash of people because I always feel it's just interesting to me to see how different people use it. And I think some media outlets have been uh, playing around with different ways to like, can they report a story on Twitter? Can they do a long form piece, but like broken up into, you know, 25 tweets? So I all of that is really interesting. And for that, I feel like I'm a little bit more of a spectator because um, I don't I don't feel like I've hit on exactly how I want to use it and what the best use is personally for me. One thing I really appreciate from Twitter is the brevity. Like I think that it is really important to be able to express your thoughts briefly. And I definitely, when I wrote something for the New York Times Magazine, they had like, you know, oh, this can only be like 427 words or something. And so, and of course I had written like, you know, an 800 word essay and I had to trim it down to this very specific word count. And the exercise of doing that was a really phenomenal learning learning experience. Just like, how can I say this in fewer and fewer words? And so I kind of look at Twitter like that. Like it helps me refine my mess any messages that I want. And I think it's it's useful that way. Whenever someone tries to argue with me on Twitter, I just I I, I don't do it because to me that doesn't work well. I've never seen anyone be like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I have completely changed my opinion based on your tweet. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think that is happening. But yeah, mostly I'm just trying to figure out. And I also, as you've mentioned, I I do work in a lot of different areas. I have my so I have people who follow me who are like writing people, and I have 
written um, before I moved to writing about public interest technology. I wrote a lot about women and just working women and um, childcare and all that kind of stuff. And so I know that I have followers in that area and I know I have public interest technology followers. And then I know I have just like random Brooklyn followers. So I, at some point said to my editor for my two books ago, um, I said, you know, I don't know what to tweet because I feel like I have these people from all these different walks of life who follow me. And I worry that like the women's equality people don't want to hear about government and the government people don't want to hear about childcare. And she said, actually, I love it when I follow people who tweet about all different things because I feel like I get to see little glimpses into other pieces of the world that I wouldn't otherwise see. So I think about that too. Like this is just at this point, maybe we're just all brands unto ourselves. And so it's just a question of figuring out like how to, how to represent that on Twitter. You know, one of the things that these social media platforms are frequently associated with is the move fast and break things ideology, which is what famously captured about a decade of Silicon Valley innovation. You've written about what you call slow innovation. And of slow innovation, you said, and I'm quoting you here, that a growth of media whose disregard for the kinds of complexities that long-form writing allows this is what characterizes this this kind of move fast and break things mentality and this connection, I think, that you make here between long form writing and this kind of slow thinking and a kind of mentality that leads to slow innovation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by slow innovation and what a change to slow innovation or slow thinking in perhaps contrast to this kind of Twitter storm mentality would mean in terms of technological production and tech culture? That's really specific to government, that innovation happens slowly. It should apply to the private sector too. The point I was trying to make in that piece and what I still live every day is that change, the kind of change that we are hoping to make with public interest technology in the public sector is not going to happen overnight. It's really big and it's a huge shift in thinking about and how to think about problems. And when you talk about doing anything in government, even when you're talking about like buying staples in government, that is a slow process. Government moves really slowly, not always for, for bad reasons. Sometimes those, there are reasons that it moves slowly. And so part of what I believe in slow innovation is that there is no other kind of innovation in government. I'm seeing this right now with a project that has taken two years to just really get started. And I think it's going to be really, hopefully, game changing once it happens. But and this is something I've been working on with the city of New York and with Baltimore, um, and I think will be a huge step forward. But if we rush into it and just built a thing and like, even if we had done some research, like let's say we ran out and like did some research and built a thing, like that doesn't, you can't do that in government. You just can't. There won't be anybody to use it. Government is huge. Even if you're talking about a small place and local government, it's still huge. There's nothing you can do in government where there aren't a lot of people who touch it. It has to be an investment. And it's it's the kind of investment that government used to make. First of all, obviously our world used to move a lot slower. And so there was time to just noodle around. I was at an event at the patent office in DC. And 
if you ever get the chance to go there, highly recommend it. They have a museum and it's a free museum in their lobby and you just can walk around and you can see they have in the museum some of the first patent, you know, display of a bunch of different things that received patents, including like the first patent that was ever issued, patents for, I don't know, all kinds of all kinds of interesting things. And what I realized at that museum is that the way that innovation used to happen, because what they have in there are things that people built in, you know, their basement. And it made me realize that's how innovation used to happen. People used to say like, gee, I wish I had a thing that chopped nuts for when I'm baking bread or whatever. I wonder if I can build that. And then they would like have time to go noodle around in their workshop and, and invent a, a thing and figure out how all of the pieces fit together. And and then that's what you see in the patent office is like literally a machine that somebody made for milling flour or whatever. And like they brought that to Washington and to get the patent. And so obviously that kind of thing doesn't doesn't happen in that way anymore but the fact that they had time to do it and to think on it and really they at that point were doing all of the things on some level that we are saying should be a part of public interest technology like they identified that they had a need for this thing and they maybe talked to some friends and said like hey i, I wish i had a thing to mill flour um, and their friends were like yeah that would be really great if you built that i would use it <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they tested it out and their friend said, you know, oh, this would be good, but it should mill, you know, in a different way. Anyway, I'm I'm belaboring the point, but no, no, actually, I think you're making a very important point here because one of you know the things that comes out from what you're saying is that these innovations are at their best, perhaps when they're conversational and when they're collaborative, you know, when somebody says, I have a need and somebody else says, did you think about it in this way? And people come together and really have a conversation and through that conversation develop, you know, a, a product that, that can be of service. And I actually wanted to pick up on that because a second uh, association that Silicon Valley has is this kind of association of the lone wolf genius, a figure who's precocious and truly innovative and almost always young and of course always almost always white and male. And off the top of my head, you know, these figures include people like Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and Sean Parker, who's Napster and MySpace, Steve Jobs, of course, at Apple. And what they have in common is this, you know, youth and masculinity and uh, they're all these young men who have been viewed by many as brilliant minds who the public view holds, single-handedly created these products that we think of as their manifestations of their genius. That, you know, the way at least they're conceived of is not as cooperative people who built products collaboratively. And, and these lone wolf figures are, are the ones who stand out in prominent popular culture. You've argued in another piece, The Mythology of the Whiz Kid, that this view is a mistake. Why is it a mistaken view? Why is collaboration a, a better way to frame and to think about technological production? And what are the consequences of having this lone wolf genius figure as a predominant model of innovation? So I think that part of my frustration with this this archetype of this the lone wolf genius is that for my whole career, when when you are a user experience 
person. There is no possible way that you can do your work just sitting by yourself, staring at your desk. The whole point of what you do is to go out and find out what is happening in other people's lives and what they think about stuff. Part of the background behind why I wrote that piece is that I saw in early civic tech movements, um, this was sort of before the creation of public interest technology, this is back when I was looking for like, how can I bring my skills to government? There was no way as a user experience designer to bring my skills to government because they were looking for people who could write code and that was it period, full stop, which I found infuriating. I saw at the time that it went back to this whole idea of there are these geniuses who you know, are typically young white men. Um, we got to get some of those <laughs> and then they can fix government. And I, at the time, during the Bloomberg administration in New York, there were a lot of hackathons that were happening. It was the, the, the heyday of the hackathon. And hackathons drove me crazy because I didn't, See how a room, like, okay, so you have a problem and you bring it to a room full of engineers and then ask them to build something <laughs> without, and I'm, I, I'm laughing before I even get to the punchline, but that you, you ask them to build something with zero input, with like zero personal experience of the problem without, you know, without including like you completely eliminated users, you completely eliminated designers. It's as though if you are a young white man who can do magic with your computer, that just supersedes everything else and means that you can solve any problem. I mean, I'm, and this thinking is not, it persists today. I mean, I saw calls for coronavirus hackathons in March Thankfully, I think we have moved on this idea that like, you know, you throw some smart people with a computer science degree, not to not to say that <laughs> smart people with computer science degrees can't do a lot of things. But the answer to all problems is not find a bunch of those people and stick them in front of a computer to write code for a while and see what comes out. Like nobody can solve a problem without the right inputs. The This whole idea of the lone genius, aside from the fact that setting aside the fact that it eliminates a large segment of the population just on, you know, on the surface, it's also not a good way to actually solve any problems. But and this is also something that I just saw personally time and again, I lived through two dot com booms. And I always saw that the people who ran those companies were always somewhat attractive white men. And I think that that can not to comment on who's attractive and who's not in Silicon Valley. But I, there is clearly something about, you know, the way that venture capital works and the way that promotions work, where those are the people who, who are just given carte blanche. Well, I mean, part of the argument that you're making here, if I understand it correctly, has to do with foregrounding the way that innovation needs to be equitable and inclusive and diverse and foundationally representational of individuals in communities who are going to be affected by the kinds of solutions and, and who are actually dealing with the problems that, that these technologies are trying to solve. Why is that in so important in your view? And how can we better get to that place where we have a more equitable, inclusive, diverse, and foundationally multi-representational space of innovation? This is so critical as this as public interest technology evolves, and I will I'll circle back to 
how to how we do it, which I don't think anyone has fully solved for yet. Having equity in problem solving is huge because it's not just a question of diverse backgrounds. There, I'll actually give an example from the book that I that I just finished. We talk about how the in New York City they were looking at how to, how to solve the rat problem in New York City, which is probably an impossible task, but reducing the rat problem. So what they did was they looked at the data from 301 to see where the calls had come from and map the rat complaint calls. So it happened that the person who was doing the data analytics was a black man who had grown up in the projects in Bed-Stuy. And he looked at the data and he did the natural thing that you would do, which is that he first looked at his neighborhood where he had, where he had grown up and he still, he's one of the projects, but he still is in the neighborhood. And he saw that there were no, they didn't have a lot of rat complaints coming from Bed-Stuy, but he had grown up there and he knew there were rats. So he called a friend of his who still lived in the projects and said, you don't have any rats anymore? <laughs> and his friend said, what are you talking about? And of course we have rats. And he said, well, why don't you ever call 301? And his friend said, what's 301? And we use that in the book to illustrate why it's really important for your data collection to be equitable, but also for the people doing the analysis to come from diverse backgrounds. And particularly when you are working on problem solving, that affects specific neighborhoods to bring people from those neighborhoods into the problem solving conversation. And this is something that we have seen teams do, actually. There's a team in Durham that is working on reducing recidivism rates in their community. And that that team brought somebody who was justice and who had been what they call justice involved onto the team as a, as a team member in order to be sure that they had that perspective. And that is so critical. And one more thing, because I love this topic, it, it was fascinating to me as I dug into it for this book to see all the places where if you don't have an equitable team, you don't have a team that represents the places where you are trying to dig in, you're going to miss stuff. I, at the time that I was writing this chapter, happened to be reading the history of pandemics because, you know, uh, <laughs> why not? And I learned that in London during the cholera ep epidemic, it was solved by a doctor who identified this poison well, and he was able to identify it because he was from the neighborhood. So, and it was like a poor neighborhood. And so most of the people who were working on cholera were, you know, fancy London people, I guess. But he happened to be from this poor neighborhood where the well, the poisoned well was. So he was able to do this mapping and tracing. And if, and if people are interested, it's actually a really fascinating story how he made these maps. So I think that that's just such a great example of like, this isn't a new idea <laughs> that think that that problem solving teams should be equitable and that in particular if you're developing a technology to fill a niche that the team that is doing that needs to be diverse um you know this this is a problem that goes back hundreds of years or probably you know forever right yeah absolutely i one of the commitments that i have in teaching ethical technology is that ethics and equity are intrinsically and fundamentally linked. And as an educator, I have to believe that part of how we get to a more ethical 
and equitable space of technological innovation is really in the design of things like curriculum. I'm in higher education, but I think that if we want to get to an equitable tech culture, one that creates tech products that can be used equitably by a diverse population and, and one that will have ethical effects, we have to start much earlier than technological production. Do you have a sense of the role that education plays in developing a tech infrastructure? How has the education design for technologists manifested in tech culture? And what would you do if you could, if you were to think about the role that curriculum could play in developing a better, more ethical and more equitable tech culture? What kinds of ideas do technologists and, and humanists who are practicing in technology need or what they, should they bring to the sphere in order to change the culture? Doing this work for this book and digging into the relationship between equity and innovation and problem solving was really eye-opening for me. I, it really changed the whole way that I understood the issue. And I will say that as somebody who was, for most of my career, the only woman in the room, this was a, such an eye-opening experience for me. My hope is that like this becomes part of the problem-solving toolkit, that whenever you are going to solve a problem, you automatically, just by reflex, bring somebody from the community on because that's how it's done. I think that probably a good way to reinforce the importance of that is to tell stories. You know, I'm a big storyteller. So I think telling stories like the the rat data story that I just shared, you know, when you hear that story, you're like, oh, that completely changed the way that I, like, now I get it. I get it. Now I understand. So I think that it had, that had that effect on me. I, as far as what educators should teach, when started thinking about how do you prepare people to be technologists in government, there was a lot of focus on, well, we should teach policymakers to code. Really? Is that really necessary? Like I, I mean, I started my career writing code. No, you, no one should ever hire me to, to do that. I, it's not really a skill set I've kept up in a meaningful way. And I, it's been fine. Like I get it. I can, I, I know what a computer can do and can't do. So I think as long as you have like a fundamental understanding of how computers work, you know, okay, maybe you need to take a semester of code just to like have that fine. But I don't see that as like, and then, and now you're done and now you're a technologist who also knows about policy. I, what I have seen happen, which I think is awesome, is I have seen some people at the graduate level say to people, find a, a problem at the university and solve it and then give them the tools to do that. Because really at its core, public if we're talking about public interest technology anyway, it is not about the tech piece. And the real the real skills to develop are asking good questions. Being able to ask good questions, being able to just always not being not afraid to ask why and why do you do it this way and why have you done it this way for a hundred years and how would you feel about changing it <laughs> just a little bit? Problem solving and uh, questioning, interviewing. I don't know if you can teach empathy, but one of the big things that we try to do in public interest technology is to create a sense of empathy for higher ups or for the people who are making decisions. So, for example. If your agency has a form that applicants need to fill out to get, let's say, food stamps, and that form is 40 pages long, or maybe seeing the 
watching the lived experience of what it is like to fill out that form while you also are, you know, juggling for 40 other things and kids and a job and whatever, being able to create those moments where people can understand other people, have empathy for other people's lived experience. I really like this point because one of the things that was very exciting for me about becoming part of the Public Interest Technology Academic Network was really thinking about a commitment to ethical and equitable technology and its relationship to public interest technology. You're, I think, making a, an ethical claim here. I would put empathy under the rubric of ethics. And I wanted to ask you to maybe expand a little bit about the relationship between public interest and ethics. How, how do you understand that relationship? It's definitely something that comes up in the field, even though it feels like, yeah, 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 and ethics. Actually, when you're doing the work, like you are trying to make decisions often that you don't have really the full knowledge to make, which I guess is why they are ethical dilemmas, especially when you're working with technology and you're employing a new technology. And we did a lot of this as I, uh, as we were transitioning out when I was working at the Department of Homeland Security in their previous administration, we thought a lot about the projects that we were working on, it happened that um, I was working on a facial recognition project, and we tried to think about how could this technology be used for evil or in a potentially illegal or an unethical way. And it turns out that when you do that, and there are whole, there are people who like specialize in how to do this. <laughs> so I don't know that we followed any of that, but we, we sat down and tried to think about it. And it turns out that it's really, really hard. And what we came up with was, well, they could create a database of all Muslim Americans, which was what was in the news a lot at the time. This was right around the Muslim the, the Muslim ban um, that came out. So we were that was kind of what was on our minds. Really, really hard to anticipate how someone else is going to use something. And I guess that makes sense because when you think about when you think about user research, one of the cardinal rules of user research is you are not the user. So in some ways, I think that it is hard to put yourself in an unethical person's, if you are an ethical person or think of yourself as being an ethical person, then maybe we all do. So that's, but that's a topic for another day. Um, but it's, it's hard. It's hard um, to think about how things might be used, which is not to say though, that there isn't an obligation to at least attempt it. And certainly a lot of the people who are working with, we see projects all the time where that, that hasn't happened where somebody will come and say, you know, oh, we were thinking about, you know, taking pictures of all of the homeless people in the city for, you know, for a good reason. And you have to say, well, maybe having a database of all pictures of homeless people in your city, all the everyone who's experiencing homelessness right now is is not a great idea. And here here's why. So part of that relies on there being technologists who can do that thinking to the extent that it can be done. And part of why that often doesn't happen is because those people don't exist and those those roles don't exist. So often you have you might have a government implementing a technology that it just really hasn't thought through. So that is certainly something that like we write about and I hate to say that it's going to get worse, but I it just feels like it will. Ethics hasn't 
traditionally been a huge piece of the modern technology world. I grew up with this idea that like, well, tech is just wonderful. And there are so many amazing things that could be done with technology for humanity. What we've seen over the last 25 years or so is that that message has gotten sort of twisted in the modern tech industry. That language still exists, but the whole ethical, the actual ethics behind it don't. So it's really confusing, I think. It's really mixed messages and really confusing. And it, it, and that's, it goes back to tech's roots as a thing that was supposed to be for good. Um, and I think that there are still, you know, obviously there are, there are people who, who want to use it for, for good. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which restructuring technological culture and production to be more ethical and more equitable and more attentive to public interest requires thinking more broadly about the industry beyond ideation or production to other parts of that ecosystem like venture capital and investment, what gets funded or even hiring practices and what gets designed and produced, of course, depends on who imagines and designs it which of course depends on who and what gets funded and, and who gets hired. And this leads me to start rethinking the entire ecosystem because as an educator working with students who are on the cusp of launching their job searches, I've really been thinking about how people get hired. A couple of weeks ago on this series, I hosted the founder of Hire Club, which is an organization that enlists social media networks to get people hired. And I asked him what he thought the biggest mistake undergraduates make when applying for the job. Any guess to what he said to me? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I, oh my God, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> His answer was applying for the job. <laughs> he explained that most people get jobs, most people get the good jobs through references and referrals and connections from people in their networks. And this proposed to me an explanation for why the tech industry might be as homogeneous as it is. Because if people tend to hire people in their networks, and if networks are already homogeneous, if jobs and internships, which frequently lead to jobs, are given to folks who are in the network, then of course they're going to remain homogeneous. What can we do to increase equity and inclusion in the culture, in the in that pipeline to the culture? To that end, I actually just met earlier this week with a group that is focused on basically job retraining for immigrant communities, especially Latinx communities, and retraining from really pr primarily from manual labor into into the tech space. So I I think you know there are these concerted efforts to do it, I, but I also think that there need to be jobs for the for people to go into. Part of this is reframing what it looks like to work in technology, I think, broadening what that means. And certainly that's a huge part of what we try to do in public interest technology is to try to make working in government appealing to a broad swath of people. You know, one of the things actually that is I do a lot, obviously I've mentioned a couple of times, I do a fair amount of work or done a fair amount of work over the years with New York City. And one of the things that I makes me so happy every time I go into a New York City government, a New York City government office is that it looks like New York City. The people on every team just look like 
who you're walking by on the street. And it feels really representative. It makes me think that there is a piece of government that actually is pretty diverse. And I think that that is also true when I think about who is in the federal government a little bit less so, obviously, because that's more pick and choose. But when you think about civil servants um, and people who are really doing the work and the frontline workers, that seems to be a lot more representational. Tying that with the tech piece, right now, it's very difficult to be a technologist in government. But if there were actually more tech roles, it does seem like government is fairly diverse and has done a good job of of looking like the people it serves and drawing from the communities that it serves. And so maybe as tech moves into government, that's a, that's a thing that can be that tech could take from the government playbook. I don't know if this is public yet, but a few weeks ago, my ethical tech research team circulated a study that we completed over the summer, which looked at the growth of what we're calling ethical technology jobs in industry, in government, in um, civil service, and in uh, the nonprofit world. And over the past couple of years, I've been tracking what I initially observed to be a growing number of jobs that I'm calling ethical technology jobs that foregrounded ethics in desired skills or background or training, and that specified ethics as part of the responsibilities of the role. And what our research did was we quantified and verified this observation and really, I think, uh, discovered what we think we could now call a new sort of professional role, an ethical technologist. What kind of skills or background or training do you think that somebody filling this role in public interest technology ought to have? How would you go about hiring a trained ethical technologist in a public interest technology role? I think I would definitely want to look for somebody who had maybe had a negative experience with building a thing that then didn't get used the way they thought it was going to be used. You know, as we were talking about earlier, I think this is really a growing, it's a new field. Since public interest technology is a new field and the application of technology in government and in the public sector is growing, these are all bringing new questions and new challenges for us. So I don't think that there are going to be a lot of people who are like seasoned ethical technologists. Barring that, I, I would imagine though that there are people who have experience with projects or products that they put out that didn't get used the way that they thought they were going to be used. And there is, I imagine, a ton to learn from that. Switching gears here, part of the public interest technology platform is focused on human-centered design. And that's a terrain that you have spent a lot of time traversing. You founded and led Collective UX, a user experience consultancy for over a decade, working with startups, Fortune 500 companies, and governmental organizations to research and design human-centered products. Why is human-centered design such an important component of public interest technology? What makes a public interest technology different in its approach to problem solving than how government usually solves problems is the focus on the human. A lot of government processes function as though there isn't an actual real person at the end of it. So if we look, for example, at the CARES Act, which was the first stimulus package uh, for the pandemic-related economic relief, that passed because there was just this general idea of like, we need to get the economy going again. They didn't think about how the money was actually physically going to get to the people. They just said, let it be so. And, And it wasn't. It wasn't so. 
there were a lot of places where people either were not able to file. Of course, we've heard stories of people not getting their stimulus checks, you know, people who had still not gotten them, people who got locked out of unemployment systems. I could go on and on and on about that. But that's a place where it feels like the, the humans got lost. And even though this was ultimately a thing done by people for other people <laughs> to make their lives better, it, it wasn't a human-centered design effort. I think we can barely say that. So the whole goal of public interest technology is to put people back into the center of the problem-solving process, to have a real understanding of who you are helping and what kind of help they need and what kind of help would be help, it would actually be helpful. What kind of help is going to make a difference? And then we also talk about that in public interest technology, you need to think about delivery. How does that help then actually reach them? These are questions that come up once you start thinking about a whole person as opposed to like, oh, just get economic relief out. So, you know, in, in the old days, back when... Abraham Lincoln was president. Apparently, he kept the doors to the White House open so that people could come and talk to him like citizens. And we don't have that anymore. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily something like we, that's probably logistically not feasible today, but we need to establish those kinds of feedback loops. There, are, Those are missing. The, the, the real human faces and the real human stories are not present for a lot of policymaking today. You know, what you're saying here reminds me of a conversation I had a few episodes back with the writer, George Estreich, on this podcast. He came on to talk about the intersection of tech and disability. In disability studies, the, the very famous mantra is nothing about us without us, which is so, I think, critical to some of the the comments you've given here. So my daughter has albinism, which means that she is legally, she's been legally blind from birth. That was a huge awakening to a whole world that I really was not familiar with. You know, one of the mantras for public interest technology is build with, not for, which sounds eerily similar to <laughs> to the what you just quoted. To that end, it's not, it's not really a new way of thinking exactly for over the decades or eons or however long every now and then somebody comes up and says oh you should find out about the people that you're doing a thing for <laughs> it's kind of obvious but um and yet it's just so easy to lose sight of that once you get into a larger organization you've written also very extensively about the complicated calculus around women and the pursuit of ambition and a lot of that thinking is collected in your book the ambition decision I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the complexities of decision-making that women specifically face when navigating career, family, and self. I, I think of that book a little bit as my, I, like I did a user experience design project on my own life. Yeah, like having a midlife crisis and I was like, let me apply some design thinking to this. Um, to Literally, we I had like sticky notes all over. So I, what I did was I went and I interviewed 40 something women that I had graduated from college with back in 1993 on their career and life trajectories. And then I, you know, my father always used to say, start with the data. So I went and I got the data with a friend of mine from college. We interviewed all these women for hours um, and then 
basically parsed what they segmented out what they had said and their themes and their quotes and like put them all on sticky notes and put them on a wall and yeah, pulled them into, you know, oh, look, a bunch of people struggled here. And oh, look, this was a, this was a um, challenging decision for this group of people. So we were able to start to see patterns emerge from, from that work. Saw that early on um, in their careers, all of our friends had been very ambitious. I went Northwestern University in Chicago. So they, you know, came out and were ready, probably similar to Cal Poly students. They came out ready to take on the world. And then not all of them became CEOs. So we wondered, why was that? Because they all talked about when we asked them, you know, when you graduated from college, what was your dream? And they told us they their dreams were all, you know, I'm going to be an opera singer at the Met. I am going to work on world peace. I'm going to be in it, you know, a, I'm going to be an investigative reporter for the New York Times. And spoiler alert, most people did not do those things, um, which is not to say that they were unhappy. Um, and it's not to say that they um, felt like they'd failed, um, but all, but that they had to make certain decisions along the way that um, took them off of that particular path. So in the book, we chart what a lot of those decision points look like. We're almost out of time, but before I let you go, I wanted to ask a question that I think a large portion of our audience, which has a very extensive student listener base, might want to ask you, what advice would you give to the next generation of technologists and humanists who may join them in the tech workforce as they they prepare for their careers potentially in tech? So many of them are right now facing really tough decisions about managing their ambition, the need to be or the desire to be successful, the desire to make money, especially if they're graduating with astronomical student loans, um, their wish to do something meaningful, their wish to do something um, that will allow them to also have room for interpersonal relationships, their desire and their vision to do good, to avoid harm, to imagine and to create. How can they navigate their ambition decisions as they launch into their careers? The first thing that I would say, and this came, this was actually something that we found in the book, uh, in the research that we did for this, for the ambition decisions, is that life is long, which may seem obvious, but your, your life has a lot of parts to it. And it's not necessary to do all of the things all from at the starting gate. There are going to be a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things and meet a lot of different goals. So if you have a need to pay off student loans immediately, that's a thing to do then. But that doesn't mean that that's for the rest of your life. We saw people in the book who said, you know, well, I wanted to go save the world, but I had to pay off my loans. And so I went and worked at a bank for 10 years. And that was fine for the people who then held onto that dream of I want to do something good for the world. And, and working at a bank is not making it is not doing it for me. They were able to pivot later on in their careers. And they also made decisions around partnering and childcare that reflected what they wanted to do long term. Definitely, the first part is that life is long and has a lot, a lot of parts. I always maintained the writing side of my career, never really thinking that I was going to 
support myself as a writer, but just because it's something that I wanted to do. And, you know, there were years where I didn't write. When I had young kids, that was just not something that I could do. And then there have been, now that my kids are older, there are, uh, you know, I have, I have a lot more freedom and a lot more time to prioritize things that will be fun for me, which was also, it's, it's also not a thing that um, like early on in your career, I think it's, it can be hard to prioritize that, but there's time to prioritize that. So that's one piece. And then the other piece that I think I have learned from my own career, which has really not followed a straight line, but has zigged and zagged. I mean, I started my career as a press secretary on congressional campaigns. So just to give you an idea, I've been in a lot of different places, but I think that I have always tried to go where there are good open questions. I like an, I like a challenge and I I like questions. I like going places where there aren't clear answers. And I think that if you're just a naturally curious person, it's important to always make sure that you're you're always wrestling with Well, thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you. This is really fun. 